For the first time since the middle of May, we are recording an episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com in which Cleveland Indians prospect Francisco Mejia is not on a hitting streak. Welcome in, everybody. It's the 72nd edition of the Show Before the Show. I'm Tyler Mon in New York City is Sam Dykstra. It's a new era. I know. We, we got to 72 before uh, Francisco Mejia did. I guess yeah. it wasn't it wasn't really much of a race, but when we're going one a week and he's going four or five a week, there is always a chance. That's true. Always, that is true. Always a chance. Um, always so a, yeah, uh, always a beat him. We beat him. Well, we 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 come out on top. Come out winners in this in this competition. In uh, this race we, he didn't know. He in this race that he did not know he was part of. Uh, yeah. And we will talk about that coming up in just a little while. But. With that, we say hi and welcome into the 72nd edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. A lot coming up on the show today. Sam got a chance to head uh, to the New York Penn League All-Star game last night, which is very cool. We're recording this on Wednesday the 17th. And uh, Nick Solak, who is the Yankees second-round pick and a New York Penn League All-Star this season, will join us. One of four Louisville Cardinals who was taken in the first two rounds this year in the Major League Baseball first-year player draft. How was the uh, the NYPL All-Star experience? Yeah, it was pretty neat. Um, it's always more, much more fun to be at a game, be at the field, talking to players in person. Um, you know, putting names to f- or names to faces and faces to names, and in, in our case, um, yeah. So it was it was neat to to see some of these guys in person. Uh, New York Penley game this year not really loaded with some of the prospects you might know of uh, in terms of high draft picks or guys ranked in the top thirty of their individual farm systems but that doesn't mean there aren't some interesting stories we'll dive a little bit more into them in a little bit but uh yeah no it was good it was good to see some of these guys in person and um it's it's only one game so you don't know how the skills are going to translate in one game especially in an all-star game like that um you know where where it is an exhibition guys necessarily aren't pushing the whole way or maybe they are overexerting because it's a little bit of a showcase but uh a lot of guys lived up to the expectations. And again, we'll touch on that later, but uh, it, it was fun to be there last night. Final all-star game of the 2016 minor league season, which is kind of nuts. And uh, that sends us into three strikes. That'll be coming up in the interview segment today. So we'll kick things off with uh, our regularly scheduled programming. And uh, three strikes, by the way, is something that you can hear weekly here on the show before the show podcast. And if you like this show, you can head to iTunes. Now you can head to the Stitcher app. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription wherever you find your podcast. You can also head to MILB.com slash podcast and find the show before the show there. So let's get started. Big promotion news coming this week. A huge one yesterday. Dansby Swanson, the top prospect in the Atlanta Braves organization, headed to the big leagues, maybe a little bit ahead of schedule, depending on who you ask. Uh, I would say certainly ahead of schedule for most prospects who uh, would pursue that top overall draft selection uh pedigree i know this is the first time i believe uh well and now i'm gonna forget this uh accurately who it was but in alex rodriguez's debut season that year was the first time that the one two of the previous year had made their major league debuts in the same season this year it's not only alex bregman of the houston astros but now dansby swanson of the atlanta braves joins him also aaron judge of the new york yankees is up at the major league level he's already hitting 900 foot home runs um these two i mean pretty big stuff let's start with dansby swanson the braves a little bit ahead of schedule in getting to him in this rebuilding plan but that looks like a master stroke right now being able to get that guy into the system the way he's climbing and now vaulting all the way over Triple A Gwinnett and getting up to the big leagues with Atlanta. Yeah, and, and can we just note the funny thing or interesting thing? I don't know if 
if it's funny if you're a Diamondbacks fan, Dansby Swanson is going to be in the majors now. Shelby Miller is still in the minors. You know, after yeah. That move. Yeah. Um, We're going to have to dive into that it, a little bit Shelby. deeper in this conversation because man, the last couple of deals between the D backs and the Braves, it's like, it's like the Braves were the school bully taking the lunch money. Cause it looks yeah. bad now. Right. Right. So we can get into that a little, little bit later. Uh, Swanson, you know, a guy, he was been on this podcast. He was on this podcast last off season, uh, when he was still with the D backs. So if you, you get a chance go back and listen to that, um, you'll hear a, li- a little bit about him and his pro debut and what was it was like getting into that. Um, but one thing that comes across is just, you know, anybody who, t- who gets a chance to talk to him, um, you know, falls in love with the kid, just his makeup and that kind of stuff. But, you know, you don't draft on makeup. You don't promote on makeup. You promote on skills. Uh, and Swanson, he's, you know, he was taking one, one for a reason. Um, this is a guy who has, you know, good skills across the board. He's definitely going to stick at shortstop, uh, which is what you like to see. We know this year a storyline with the Braves was how are they going to handle Swanson and Ozzie Albies, both shortstops in their own right, uh, both pretty good shortstops. And I remember in the spring, there was the idea of who was going to stick there. You know, it just depended on the day who you asked. Um, but, you know, at double A Mississippi this year, it looked like Swanson won the job over Albies. Albies moved over to second. Um, they're still still going to develop that tandem as the their double play partnership of the future. Um, Albies will have to wait. Obviously, he's still a couple of years younger uh, than Swanson, but uh, at the at the times Dansby was promoted, he was hitting 261, 342, 402. That was a slash line with eight homers, uh, five triples, 13 doubles, and six steals in 84 games at Double A Mississippi. Started the year at Class A Advanced Carolina, tore it up there, got promoted pr- pretty quickly after only 21 games in the Carolina League. Uh, if the, that slash line didn't sound great. Uh, let me give you just a little or just go a little deeper. Double uh, A Mississippi, they don't have the greatest, you know, offensive friendly uh, pitching park at Trustmark Park there uh, where the M Braves play. Uh, if you going back a couple of years, uh, one of our former colleagues, Ash Marshall, did a uh, look at double A park factors. If you get a chance, look that up on the site. Uh, Mississippi was second to last in the Southern League in terms of um, you know, how well a park can help a hitter. Um, so he, his numbers were deflated a little bit. Let me give you his road numbers if that's going to help you. Uh, he hit 280, 380 was his on base percentage, 419 is his slugging percentage in 46 games on the road in double A. Uh, so if he had put those numbers across the board, I mean, that's then we're talking about easy promotional material. Uh, otherwise, you know, hitting 261 with a 745, you, you want to sit there and think maybe he deserved. You know, or maybe he needed a little extra time in double A. Uh, Braves just dis- disagreeing. You know, I think a lot of that does come back to the makeup bit of it. I mean, Swanson is definitely a guy who's willing to tackle any challenge that comes his way. Uh, you know, I remember being there at spring training again, and, and he just fit very well in that Braves clubhouse. He did not look like the new guy on campus or the young guy on campus when he was there. Um, you know, plugged himself in really well. I'm sure that's what they're looking for him to do here. Obviously, the Braves aren't contending right now. Uh, so not a big move to get a push, you know, towards the postseason as the Astros did a couple weeks ago with Alex Bregman. Um, so this is more just a, a move to get Swanson's feet wet. 
but you know it's it's an intriguing one you know we we want to see the best talent at the top level we want to see what happens when they get tested and uh we'll definitely get to see that chance here in, in dansby swanson and uh maybe a little earlier than we previously thought but that doesn't make it any less exciting by the way it was darren dreifert Darren Dreifert was the other guy who uh, joined Alex Rodriguez in the major leagues a year after they were drafted. Not even a year after they were drafted. Uh, Darren Dreifert made his big league debut on April 7th, 94. He was the second overall pick in the 93 major league first year player draft behind one Alex Rodriguez who made his major league debut July 8th of 94. So now Alex Bregman and Dansby Swanson get to be the first one, two picks uh, in reverse order Swanson and Bregman to make their major league debuts in the year following that. Um, Pretty impressive though. And uh, it does bring about the larger conversation. And if you are an Arizona Diamondbacks fan, maybe fast forward like five minutes. Um, This looks bad for the Diamondbacks uh, because Dansby Swanson's surging. Aaron Blair has already contributed to the major league level. He was included in that deal last year. Uh, Blair has made 11 appearances for the Braves this season, 11 starts. They haven't been good, uh, an 0-5 record and a 7.99 ERA. But with uh, AAA Gwinnett, he's also made 11 starts, much better there. And the tools are certainly there for Aaron Blair to be successful. And, oh, by the way, Tuki Toussaint, also a former D-backs first-round pick and now currently a prospect uh, in the Braves system who has been really good in stretches for Rome this year, Class A Rome. He struggled a bit, but he's only 20 years old, and the upside, I mean, he was the 16th overall selection in 2014. The upside to Tukey is as high as a whole lot of pitchers who came out of that draft. But if you're the D-backs right now, how, how are you feeling about yourselves these days? Because Shelby Miller has been a disaster this year, and it's been really tough to watch that with Shelby Miller. And, you know, when he's gone back to the minor leagues, he's been successful. He's been pretty good for AAA Reno. Obviously dominated in his rehab starts with Class A Advanced Visalia. But uh, Shelby Miller was the reason that you gave all this up. Now he is in AAA, and Dansby Swanson is in the major leagues. I mean, what does this make you feel like if you are on that side of this with a rooting interest? Yeah, Not I mean, good. No, you just have to reevaluate, you know, the way you either look at major league talent or the way you value your own prospect talent. I mean, you know, we we wish this was an exact science, right? We wish it was, you know, Shelby Miller is, let's call him a value of one, and Dansby Swanson is a value of a half, and Blair is a value of a half, and, you know, whatever, and you just add it up, and it's very clear. It's not always clear. So a lot of this is a guessing game. Right. Especially when you're talking about prospects, you're you're betting when you trade them away that they're not going to work out or what you're getting in return is going to be so much better. They have made some bad bets. That's that's what it comes down to. I mean, you you bring back the Toussaint trade. We don't know how that's going to work out. But what they essentially did was just, you know, they sold him to the Braves. I mean, you got to look if if I'm the D-backs, you know, I, I would really try to do a better job of how you evaluate the talent you have in your system, because these are building blocks. I mean, you know, Shelby Miller is not working out. Okay. Well now maybe you have the next arm up. Maybe it is Aaron Blair, uh, but now he's gone. You know, you don't have that option anymore. They, they've turned to Braden Shelley who's doing, you know, fairly well. They have Archie Bradley, you know, but it's not, they don't have the depth they once did, and we we know how important depth is in a minor league system. I mean, that's how you build a very strong major league club. You know, you go back to the 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 Yankees of the '90s. You know, they they weren't strong because they overpaid for free agents. They were strong because of what they brought up through the system. You know, with that core group there. 
uh, you know, so to peel off your depth for individual pieces, you know, sometimes this is what happens. And, you know, when, when you're trading away the first overall pick in a draft where everybody agrees is a very good player, this is not just like a, well, we took him because he was cheaper to sign type situation. Uh, you know, you have to be prepared for this type of price and for it to come around and just kick you right in the backside. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Swanson. You know, he's, he's made it up in his first full season. Good for him. Uh, still has to perform at the major league level. So maybe we're having a different conversation if it doesn't work out, but that, that would seem like a bad bet now. It was a bad bet then. I think we all said that. And, uh, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll see if this actually means anything different for the D-backs or if they just keep on doing business the way they have. And uh, it hasn't worked out so far. And, yeah, they really do need to reevaluate, I think. Man, if you go back seven years or so, it has been quite a mixed bag uh, with the Arizona Diamondbacks and their first-round selections. Let's just – A.J. Pollock obviously worked out very, very well. 17th overall selection in 2009, not healthy this season, but a fantastic player when he is. Uh, 2010, Barrett Lauks was a disaster. Barrett Lauks had agreed to a contract with the Diamondbacks. That deal was pulled at the last minute. That whole situation turned into a wild and weird, crazy road that actually led to Barrett Lauks being declared a free agent outside of the draft. He eventually ended up signing with the Texas Rangers and has been effective as stretches through his minor league career, but has never really been able to stay fully healthy. That was the initial concern with the D-backs. Andrew Chafin and Archie Bradley, first-round supplemental picks in 2011, have worked out. Archie Bradley... Very, very good prospect. Mixed results in the major league so far, but a really, really high upside of talent. But the first pick that year for the D-backs was Trevor Bauer, who is no longer in the organization. That was in 2011. 2012 first-round pick striker Trahan. Very mixed results in the low minor leagues. Aaron Blair now gone in 2013. Braden Shipley has made his debut and has pitched well. He was the uh, the first pick of that year's draft. Blair was the 36th overall pick. Shipley went 15th overall, but he was the D-backs' first selection. But now Toussaint gone, Swanson gone. So three of your last four first-round picks coming into 2016 are gone from the organization, and the one from two years prior to that is gone as well in Trevor Bauer. I mean, it's just this the way this organization has tried to build itself really kind of leaves you scratching your head at this stage, especially when you see the success that the guys are having who were those prospects at one time. Yeah, no, it's uh, – you know, you just keep coming back to it. It's just a, it's a lot of head-scratching moves. Um, you know, th this is our specialty. You know, this is what we do. We do focus on prospects. So, you know, guys get traded. You know, I'll be the first to admit we take a little harder than other, um, you know, people in baseball and baseball media might. But, uh, yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is what you would hold up as, like, let's make sure we don't do this uh, if you're an organization going forward. Now, that being said, uh, Dansby Swanson is one of our favorite guys. We wish him all the best of luck. And so far this season, uh, he did not need a whole lot of seasoning at the uh, the AA and Class A advanced levels uh, before he got the uh, the call up. In 21 games, the Class A advanced Carolina this year, a 333, 441, 526 slash line. And with AA Mississippi 84 games, uh, he was just about as good, 261, 342, 402. Uh, combined, he has bashed nine home this season and driven in 55 and uh again a really easy guy to cheer for and another one of those vandy boys making it to the big leagues what a surprise that is <laughs> i know no between, way yeah between him and carson fulmer uh, yeah it, it was like if you wanted to play guess the hashtag for carson <laughs> fulmer's uh congratulatory text or a tweet to dansby swanson um i i don't think vegas would have had it on the board that it was hashtag vandy boys 
No way. The Vandy yeah. boys are back at it again. Um, strike two this week is a uh, an interesting one that we alluded to at the beginning of the show. Francisco Mejia, the number four prospect in the Cleveland Indians organization. A hit streak that was a minor league modern day record. It reached 50 games and it ended in game number 51. A remarkable streak. Always a bummer to see a streak come to an end. But the way that the streak extended to 50 certainly uh, didn't have... Th- there were a lot of people I would say that probably weren't disappointed when it ended before it got to 51 a weird and wild last week for francisco mejia now that's behind him he gets to just go back being a stud prospect in the indian system yeah so let's let's just talk about the way it did reach 50 quick because i'm sure it's on the minds of anybody who does know the story anybody who doesn't you will want to know this story uh i i think it was uh saturday night i want to say uh or no it was friday into saturday uh right you know francisco mejia doesn't get a hit so the the um hit streak is supposed to end at 49 games we even sent out a push notification saying you know he finishes the game hitless hit streak over bippity boppity boo that's it you know good for him now we can all celebrate it move on uh about an hour after the game ends and tyler you wrote the story so you you can probably tell the, yeah. the tiktok of what it was like just you know dealing with writing this story but about an hour afterwards a you know a, a play earlier in the game involving mejia he hits a ball down the line it initially ruled an error gets turned into a double an hour after the game the official score changes ruling uh so what was that like trying first of all just covering that just covering something where you're like yeah that thing that happened that didn't seem like anything at the time is now a major feat and uh yeah just talk about what it was like that night covering that whole thing well let's pull a little bit of the curtain back on this um changes like this to scoring decisions post game are not uncommon um and speaking as somebody who uh had to be the the person who got yelled at for a lot of them uh when i was a minor league radio guy i would say it was a rarity if multiple days went by in a week that when i was delivering box scores to the visiting clubhouse and the home clubhouse one or both coaching staffs did not have a complaint to register with the official score now i was not the official scorer but i was the one who got to listen to all of it that happens on a nightly basis So that is not a rare thing. And I think a lot of people probably thought that it was, um, it seemed more shady than it actually was, but we get scoring decisions like this. I mean, we're copied on the emails that come into stats from teams all over the minor leagues that say, oh, by the way, in the fourth inning, this was ruled a hit. This was ruled a fielder's choice. This needs to be this. This needs to be that. So that happens pretty regularly. But what I think added fuel to this fire was when the Lynchburg Hillcats released video of that hit, which definitely leads people to make their own conclusions on whether or not it was a hit or an error. Uh, So the situation was bottom of the third inning francisco mejia this is against the winston-salem dash back on august 12th mejia was over one at that point uh and sent a grounder down the third base line off of winston-salem starter tanner banks and that got by winston-salem third baseman gerson montilla now it was ruled an error initially but after the game it was changed to a hit by the official scorer and i got a chance to talk to hillcats manager mark Budzinski later on that night and waiting for that call i sort of knew what was going on because it had been over an hour and i hadn't heard back from the team yet and generally that means there's an extended conversation going on between the coaching staff and the official scorer 
there's a lot of leaning that goes on there where the coaching staff is going to say it was an iffy play. It's a home game, which made it surprising enough that it was ruled an error in the first place. But it's a home game. You would have figured that in any gray area, Mejia probably gets a hit called anyway. And I think had that been ruled a hit initially, it's not even really a controversial conversation. People might say I disagree with that call, but I think it goes and people don't really worry about it that much. Uh, but the coaching staff has a meeting with the official score. The official score goes back and watches the video. And that then becomes the decision uh, to overturn the call. The Hillcats actually released a statement post game saying, quote, the video review showed that the ball was struck far enough away from the backhand of the third baseman and hit with enough force and topspin to prevent Montilla from making the play with ordinary effort. That's the key phrase there. Ordinary effort is what the decision goes off of to be a hit or an error for official scorers. It continued based on this, the official score changed the error to a hit. Um, again, I think if we're sitting in the circumstance and it had been ruled a hit in the first place, maybe you watch the video and go, eh, I don't know about that. But because because it was an error and then was changed to a hit oh looky here it extends the hitting streak to 50 games so that's what you know kind of i think put a, a sour taste in some people's mouths but the thing is that was still had it ended at 49 games it was the longest hitting streak in minor league baseball still since right. uh, right. otto palman had hit in 50 straight in 1922 it's incredible <laughs> the whole thing was incredible yeah, no, for sure. It was, it, it, and you know, they, not to use a pun here, but it was a 50 50 call, I think. Right. And right. The fact, like, like you mentioned, it was a home game. And to be naive or, you know, to say anything else that, you know, home players aren't going to get their own calls with the official scorers is naive. So, you know, if judging in the moment, I've watched it a couple dozen times, I would give it a hit. Um, I w wouldn't argue if an official you know scorer gave it an error um it, it's unfortunate the way it went down but it it's at least a little bit intriguing uh it was fun being around the clubhouse yesterday just because there's so many people talking about this uh or the press box i should say at the new york penn league all-star game somebody brought it up and a lot of people just kind of waved it off like well you know what it ended at 50 so there's not not a lot of uh reason to keep blubbering about this um you know good for Mejia to, to take it to that point where it matters that you know we care whether he got a hit in a, in this random game in August but uh yeah no it's it's uh to, to say it it's anything other than just a normal thing in the minors um is kind of naive and you know it, it it's cool to look it'll be cool to look back on it'll be cool to have another chapter in that epically long hitting streak um but other than that it's just kind of a footnote I think but a big congratulations, no matter what, a huge congratulations to Francisco Mejia, because even if it's 49 games, 49 games is an amazing hitting streak. Getting it to 50 yes. is so cool. And seeing right. that round number, I mean, it's an incredible accomplishment. And it's not like it's a guy who you're not going to hear of anymore. Francisco Mejia is a very highly touted prospect. There was some discussion that he could have been involved in a trade that could have landed the Indians' Matt Lucroy. Uh, that ended up not happening. Obviously, Lucroy going to the Texas Rangers at the trade deadline. Um, but it is a... A, a player and a streak that will live on for a very long time um, but also congratulations in order to Joe Wilhoyt who I would imagine is like the 72 Dolphins popping champagne <laughs> in heaven somewhere because his minor league record hit streak of 69 games in 1919 still stands so congratulations Joe 
uh, you get to you get to keep another one rolling. Um, by the way, just to put it in perspective, earlier on this season, Alex Dickerson of the El Paso Chihuahuas had a hitting streak that went 29 games from April 18th to May 31st. And I remember feeling at that point like, man, this hitting streak's been going on forever. Uh, Francisco Mejia had a hit in every game dating back to May 25th. May 25th. Yeah. It has been going on forever because he catches. He doesn't play every day. Obviously, rest days, that type of thing. But that's incredible. The longevity of that is incredible. That that's also the kind of the interesting thing from my point of view is that uh, you know the Indians really haven't treated it like there's a hitting streak going on. Right. You know, it would be easy to kind of drive him into the ground, just be like, okay, well, you're not catching today, but you're DHing. Um, You know, there is a bigger picture here. Uh, It's nice that he's part of history, but. You know, they're not developing a historic Class A, Class A advanced player. Uh, they're trying to develop a an impactful major league player, and that's going to mean taking some days off. That might have helped him in the long run in terms of the hitting streak. You know, it keeps him a little fresher than some other players who are playing every day. But, uh, you know, we're not going to hold that against him. And you still have to get a hit in 50 straight games, which is not easy. Interestingly enough, the streak actually ended on a day in which he was DHing too, which is a little bit strange, but it is pretty incredible to see it come from a catcher. It's very incredible to see it come from a catcher. Um, So congratulations to Francisco Mejia. Also, congratulations to commenter No Hit No Glove, who actually had a very reasonable, level-headed comment uh, on the story at MILB.com. He said, quote, the more you look at the play, the more you can talk yourself into anything. The delay also allows other factors, the streak, to be considered where they shouldn't. I'd go with error here either way nothing to get your drawers in a bunch about who is this guy why is he commenting reasonably on the internet oh you know what the internet's for scream angrily about something yeah i know yeah where's the all caps unless <laughs> unless drawers was in all caps i don't know no sadly we use drawers anymore but uh yeah no i like more, it. more of that please yeah please. more of that no hit no glove yeah. guys he's our ambassador to the comments section um so congratulations francisco mejia and lynch for kill cats fans and, and lake county captains fans everywhere because it was spread across two levels by the way um strike three this week sam yesterday new york pen league all-star game very cool in hudson valley uh the all-star experience in the minor leagues is always a ton of fun tell us what it was like yeah so it, it's kind of neat i i my experience growing up with all-star games was i used to go to the cape cod baseball league all-star game um, which is really neat because it you know, at that point, these are college guys. They you don't know which ones are stars. A lot of guys have the feeling of what they're going to be, uh, but you don't quite know yet. Uh, and New York Penn League felt a lot like that. I mean, these are lower levels. Some of these guys take drafted this year. Some of these guys, you know, have been in the minors for a while and are trying to work their way through. Um, you know, and they're all rewarded with, with this one game, and they all seem happy to be there. They seem happy to be rewarded with that. Uh, you know, some of these guys are traveling from all over the the uh, eastern seaboard just to cut, get here for one game. You know, you get two or three at bats, uh, maybe pitch one inning. Um, but otherwise, you know, they, they're happy for the recognition. One thing I was not fully prepared for, which is kind of interesting. I don't know if this is just a New York Penn League thing. It sounded like it might be, but the pitchers were given 25 pitch limits. I don't know if that was I think that was a hard cap for everybody. Um, but what happened was once a pitcher reached 25 pitches after the end of an at bat, it, the inning just ended. So it didn't matter if there were two runners on and one out, two runners on and two outs, uh, the inning just ended because of, you know, this is an exhibition. It is a showcase. It doesn't really matter who wins, who loses. Um, so you're getting, you know, 
there were just some odd innings where it just kind of just stopped. Everybody, you know, there was a hit and then that was it. Um, so it was a little interesting to see from that point of view. Didn't really matter. Nobody was really crying about it. It was just like, oh, okay, so how do we put this in our scoreboard or scorecards? Um, but there were two guys I went there to, to go see. Uh, you know, a third was Nick Solak, who you guys will hear from later. Um, and I'll explain that interview as we lead into it. But there were two guys I was interested in. Again, going back to the start of the podcast, I said there weren't a lot of guys this year, you know, first-round picks, um, top 30 in your organization. So what I wanted to go there to know was the guys who were league leaders and things. Who was who le- leading the New York Penn League? How did they get to that point? You know, how did they work their way uh, into a starting gig at this All-Star game? So the two guys I came up with, Travis Ott, uh, which was a really interesting story. He's the, he was the starting pitcher actually yesterday for Hudson Valley, getting to pitch in his own park. Um, this is a guy who right now has a 0.41 ERA in 43 and two-thirds innings for the Renegades this year. Uh, 45 strikeouts, a 0.71 whip. Uh, 21-year-old left-hander. So a little for the for the level, been around for what feels like a while. He was drafted in the 25th round in 2013. Um, but this is a guy who made some real changes to, to put up these numbers. I mean, you, you, like I said, he's not a top 30 pitcher in the race system in terms of stuff. Um, but he entered this year as a bullpen arm. That was the whole plan. You know, he tried a couple times. This was going to be his third trip to the New York Penn league. Uh, he'd been a starter each time he came over fr- to the Rays from the nationals in that big Will Myers, Trey Turner, Steven Souza, Joe Ross trade, uh, kind of forgotten name in that, uh, they were going to move him to Frank the Robinson, Mill Pappas. That was like the biggest trade ever. <laughs> that that Will Myers deal last year was like generational. Yeah, no, there's just so many. <laughs> I, you forget how many names were involved in there. You're just like, oh, Travis Ott, you were throwing. <laughs> I kind of forget how many teams were involved in that. It seemed like right. everybody was involved in that deal. I think it was officially three teams and eleven players, but who knows? They could still be adding people. The Trey Turner <laughs> rule might be still different. Um, but you know, Ott came over. And so this is his second year in the Rays organization. They tell him, we're going to move you to the bullpen. He's like, okay. He used to come at it from a side arm point of view. I mean, he was a left-hander, you know, he's six foot four, real scrawny guy, six foot four, 170, coming at you from a side arm. Uh, and extended this year, they're like, why don't we try you over the top? And why don't we try that today in an extended spring training game? Just go and do it. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he does it. It's a little uncomfortable, but he can feel his pitches, you know, having a little more accuracy. He's got a little more command. He even said he had a little more velocity on his fastball, about 200 miles an hour more, but nothing, nothing crazy. But still, that's noticeable for a guy who yesterday, I think his fastest pitch was 93. So if you're talking about a 91 mile an hour fastball versus a 93 mile an hour fastball, it makes a difference. So, you know, he, he started working more over the top still as a reliever. Uh, makes a couple, you know, uh, uh, appearances out of the bullpen. Excuse me, including one five-one hit in uh, outing in his for, in his 2016 debut. Then the Renegades turn to him again and say, "Hey, we actually we do need you as a starter." A couple, you know, there's some injuries. Um, you know, so they move need to move the rotation around a bit. He's been just as effective. Uh, this is a guy. He's got a pretty good slider. Uh, a changeup that you know he's still working on that arm slot, still working on that over the top. But it, at that level, it, he's certainly been effective. He's a guy who knows what he is. He's not going to blow it past you. 
Uh, he's got to find his command, and he thinks he's done that. So, you know, it was, it was interesting to talk to him before the game, get that little backstory there. Uh, found out he didn't have an agent. He was taken in the 25th round of the 2013 draft. Did not have an agent at all. When he got traded, he's like, yeah, now's the time to have an agent because I have no idea how this works. So he did that. That, that was kind of interesting. You can read my story on him. Uh, and what I think the last thing he said to me was, you know, it's an honor to be here. And I think we're going to put on a show tonight. He ends up being the starter in the game, strikes out two in his one inning of work, definitely puts on a show. So it was cool to see him follow up on that. Other guy I really wanted to talk to was Tyler Hill in the Red Sox system. Um, this is another guy, 19th round pick in 2014 out of the Delaware Military Academy uh, in Delaware, obviously, in Wilmington. Not, you know, as a 19th round pick, not really on anybody's radar in terms of this is a guy I have to know in a Red Sox system that we know is pretty loaded with some interesting prospects. Uh, was coming off a year, you know, his first full season last year in 2015 was actually spent at the complex level in the Gulf Coast League where he hit 250 with a 344 on base percentage and a 280 slugging percentage. Not really a lot of power there. Um, some speed, he had 11 steals in 39 games. Uh, but again, not a name you would you would know even if you were a pretty, you know, diet and wool uh, Red Sox fan. Coming into this year, they bump him up to Lowell just to see what he's got. And he's really responded. Right now, he leads the New York Penn League with a 30, 341 average. Uh, he's second in on-base percentage at 411, second in slugging percentage at 494. So he has a real shot at cracking the slash line triple crown there. He's hit three home runs. Uh, this is a guy who had five extra base hits in 43 games all of last year. He's up to 16 extra base hits in 46 games this year. Uh, nine steals, so he's still got some pretty good speed. Admitted to me that he's still getting used to the outfield. He was a catcher in high school for his first three years, made the move to outfield as a senior. Um, still kind of getting used to that. You could see that a little bit. He whiffed on a ball last night in left field. Uh, but again, a guy who lives up to expectations. He homered on in the uh, first pitch he saw um, to lead off the game for the North team in the New York Penn League All-Star game. So right from the get-go, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, you know, I've talked to him. I want to see what this is going to be like. Smacks it out of the park to left field. Uh, so that was really neat to see that in person. Uh, cool, cool little note: the reason why he signed with the Red Sox didn't go to college. Uh, I think he was going to go to Wilmington University. Didn't go to college because he liked the Red Sox a lot. He said a couple of teams were calling on him earlier in the draft saying, would you sign? Would you sign? He said, I don't, I don't know. Not there. Not with you guys. He was waiting on the Red Sox call. Red Sox call in the 19th round saying, would you sign? And he said, absolutely. Uh, you know, down in Delaware, thinking maybe he would have been potentially a Phillies fan, maybe an Orioles fan, but he fell in love with the team in 2004. He said he still gets excited thinking about the comeback AOCS really wanted to be a part of this Red Sox organization and is now putting in the work to work his way up. Um, you know, is he still, is he going to be a top 30 prospect this offseason? Maybe not. There's still some work to be done. There is not any huge standout tool, but for you know a guy who's 20 years old right now, putting up the numbers he is in that level, he's performing where he is. Uh, and he's, he, he'll at the very least be a name to watch in 2017. So, the New York Penn League All-Star Game, now in the rearview mirror, which is uh, kind of crazy. That's like the last benchmark event in uh, in the minors this season, and that is behind us. But as a bonus cut from the NYPL All-Star Game, we transition into our uh, foul ball for this week's edition of Three Strikes. Final question, Sam. Olympics, 
rolling on. We're uh, we're nearing kind of the final stretch of the Olympics. Um, we we do have one Olympian in the minor leagues. Chicago White Sox prospect Eddie Alvarez is a former Olympian, a winter Olympian, um, a speed skater, and uh, awesome, awesome that way. For your take, who would make the best Olympian among baseball's top prospects, and why? Yeah, so th- th- there's any number of ways we could go with this, with this, right? Like, there's just so many Olympic sports. You think, okay, yep. who's the fastest? It's like, oh, okay, I would love to see Jorge Mateo race Yohan Mankata, something like that. Um, yeah. I, I, part of me would love to see what a pitcher could do with a javelin. Yeah, that would be an interesting transition of skill set. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, w- would Tyler Glass now be able to just chuck a javelin very far would alex reyes be able to do the same thing yeah um you know that that would be kind of interesting to see uh you know what, what could joey gallo do with the shot put uh we know he he does one of his specialties is sending balls very far away uh so would how would he do in that era area um you know one, one thing that would be kind of cool i would like to see jp crawford in handball I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay. Uh, you know, we huh. know he's got really good hands at shortstop. He's kind of quick. He's not super fast, but handball is always this sport that, you know, I think, and a lot of people think this as well. The Americans should be able to dominate this. You know, this, we're a country of athletes. God bless us. And if we wanted to, we could create the greatest handball team to ever play, but the sport just never catches on here. Um, so I would love to see a, a team of like NBA players, you know, any NHL player, anybody playing at the top level, Mike Trout as a handball guy, but JB Crawford, just because his hands are so good, he is kind of quick. He's got that quick twitch, um, over there at a, at a difficult position. We know he has the agility. That would be a lot of fun to see, I think. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go off the board and, and not focus on track stuff or that kind of thing. I would just love to see JP Crawford and handball. Okay. I like that. That's a, that is an out of left field kind of take. I would not, um, handball is one of the ones that I haven't really gotten a chance to watch a ton yet this year, but I feel like that is a, it's a Hand- good transitional skill. Handball is one of those sports that everybody who watches it is like, yeah, I could do that. I yeah. Would, I would yeah, that's all true. doing that. That would be a lot that's of true. fun. And then, yeah. And if you no. threw any of us in there, we would just get destroyed <laughs> and it would just, it would not be fun very quick, but, um, it looks um, like a lot of fun. So we should all play it at some point. I, uh, I feel like whenever we have questions like this, I always gravitate toward just picking Joey Gallo. And I think it's just because when I interviewed him in spring training a couple of years ago, he was the most hulking human being I've ever stood by. Uh, but today I watched an event um, called the, uh, I believe it was the kayak sprint. No, maybe the canoe sprint. Uh, I literally just had it. The canoe sprint, the canoe sprint. It's a, uh, it's an Olympic sport this year. Um, I don't know if it has been for, uh, for quite some time, but basically you get in a canoe or a kayak, which I don't really know the difference oh, much come between on, them. Don't, and I, you don't know, I live in Colorado, so I should know that. Yeah. Come on, man. No, I do. No, I do. I got it. Okay. Um, but these ones, you basically, you're on one knee, you have one paddle, and you just try to blast your way through the water as quick as possible. So it's 100 meters or 200 meters, and today I watched it, and they're all just like hulking, gigantic dudes. I feel like Joey Gallo could probably rock that thing. <laughs> I was like, I wonder where you're going with this. Like, yeah. No, it's just, possible. you just have to be a wall of muscle. So I feel like joey gallo could probably do that i mean maybe i th- th- again that's a lot of like quick you have to his strokes would be super powerful i have no doubt about that probably more powerful than anybody who's down there right now 
but you just have to keep going at it so quickly that I don't know. I, I would I would pay to see it. That's for sure. Okay. I would pay. To, okay. I would pay to Good. see that. Uh, Joey Gallo in a kayak race. So if he if he's listening and he has footage of him in a kayak, I yeah I send it our way. It. Yeah, sure. JP Crawford in handball. Joey Gallo in the the kayak slash canoe sprint. Those are our <laughs> those are our two picks. Uh, Nobody you saw those your selections. <laughs> You can tweet us your selections. Uh, Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mon. And you can email the show as well, podcast at M-I-L-B.com. And that'll do it for three strikes this week. Coming up, we head to the New York Penn League All-Star Game at Hudson Valley, the home of the Renegades, where Sam got a chance to uh, catch up with one of the members of the very, very bright future of the New York Yankees organization, which seems to just get brighter as every single day rolls along. But Yankees second rounder Nick Solak, the Louisville product, joins the show before the show coming up next. And just to set up some uh, background on this, you know, Solak was, is at Staten Island right now. So we got into a little bit of what it's like to be you know, across the the harbor from the place you're trying to work towards in the Bronx. Um, but also we, we touched on a couple of things and I just want to clear this up before we get going. Tyler mentioned, you know, he is a Louisville product. Louisville was, I think I finished the year at the number two uh, team in the country. Didn't quite make it to the college world series actually lost on a walk-off grand slam uh, before the World Series, that's how their se- season ended. So you'll hear me ask about that. That's what I'm alluding to when I say, you know, did, did it leave a sour taste in your mouth at the end of the season? Um, also, Louisville had some had one of the best draft classes this year. Corey Ray going to the Brewers, uh, Will Smith, uh, and um, Chicago White Sox taking Zach Birdie, who's already at AAA Charlotte as a reliever. Um, so we talked about what it's like to be part of that class and how they're kind of working towards or working with each other. Uh, but we start off here first uh, with me asking Solak about what it's like uh, it, the first half of his first pro season. It's been going well. Um, you, know, you don't really know exactly what to expect getting into it, I guess. But, um, you know, you, after a couple of weeks or so, you start to get used to uh, the daily grind and just getting all your work in and coming out and playing games. It's been fun. What's been the biggest surprise so far, the biggest challenge? Um, I'd say just the biggest difference is just, you know, the, the longer days. Uh, you know, it's different from, you know, being at college where you, you go to class and you have practice and, right. you know, that's pretty much it. But, you know, here it's you're dedicating yourself to, you know, perfecting your craft every single day. You're at the ballpark for long hours, um, you know, before the, even the game starts, just working on your game. Um, improving and then you know just going out and having fun and you know showcasing your still skills as you play the game yeah I mean you're talking about improving do you feel like you've improved at all I know it's only been a short time to start playing but are you an at all different player now that you're in the Yankee system yeah for going sure that process? Um, yeah every single day you know you're, you're looking to improve something um, you know it, for me it's I've been working a lot on my defense um, you know base running and offensively and you, you just you know, you pick up new things every single day from the coaching staff, from other players, um, and just, and just uh, you know, you just you just work on something new every single day. And uh, what are you saying, working on defensively, what are you trying to focus on there at second? Um, just working on, you know, uh, getting to more balls in the holes, taking hits away from guys, and then the double play turn uh, between the feed and then the turn. Um, you know, just working on that to, you know, help out the pitchers and get some double plays. 
And take me through the draft process for you, you know, going from a big program in Louisville, going to a big organization in the Yankees, taking in the second round. What was that process like? Um, it, was, it was really cool. We had a ton of guys um, drafted from Louisville this year. We all watched it. You know, all the guys that were, uh, you know, getting drafted that first night, we all watched it together in the basement of our field. Um, you know, to hear your name called by the Yankees is awesome. Um, very humbling to be in, you know, such a great organization that's had so much success uh, and a history of success, and, um, and it's just a great place to be. Yeah, and you mentioned um, so many of you guys got taken early there, you know, between Ray, Birdie, Bill Smith, all those guys. Um, you know, how, how kind of special was that Louisville team, and what was it like going through it as, you know, a foursome of, of high picks like that? Yeah, um, you know, it, it was awesome because a lot of those guys, you know, I, I came into school with, so, you know, you you're, you get there as a freshman, you know, kind of like getting into Pro Bowl, you don't know exactly what to expect, and, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you come in with that, that certain class of guys, um, you know, that you're around every single day, um, you know, in the weight room, on the field, off the field. Um, so, you know, you're really supportive of all the other guys, pushing each other to get better. And, um, you know, it was a really unique group to be a part of. The, you know, it was a lot of great baseball players, but also just a lot of great people in general. Mm -hmm. And how much are you guys communicating with each other about how your draft processes are going? I mean, obviously different rounds, different picks, that's all different, different organizations. But how much are you guys talking with each other? Yeah, about what we it's talk like? a ton. Uh, we still got a group chat, you know, from all the guys on the team last year. Um, actually, I live with Birdie. I lived with Birdie last year, and okay. I'm his roommate. I'm living with him in the off season. So I talk to him, you know, almost every day, all the time. So. Um, you know, just keeping up with those guys and, you know, wishing them the best. And, you know, we're just always trying to be supportive of each other, you know, as, uh, as you go through minor league baseball. Yeah. And Birdie in particular, um, you know, what has he kind of given you about pointers? I mean, he's just shot up so far, moving quickly in that system. Yeah. Um, you know, what is it like to see him move that quickly like that? Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, you know, he's one of the hardest working guys, you know, I've ever been around. Um, Love working out with him in the off season, and you know he's just a, a, a got a great work ethic, and it's and he's a very competitive guy too. So it's fun to it's uh, fun to see how how well he's been doing uh, thus far. And what, what was that end of the season like for you guys? You know, the walk-off grand slam, um, season's over, just like that. I mean, how, did that leave a bad taste in your mouth, or how, what was it like after going through that? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely tough. Um, you know, but like the, like our head coach kind of told all, that whole group of guys, um, you know, you, you want to leave the program, you know, better when you leave than when you got there. And I think, you know, as a, a collective group, I think that we're, we we accomplished that. And, um, you know, I, I know that the program's in great hands and has a bright future. And, you know, when they do eventually win a national championship, I'm going to be just as proud as if I won it playing there. So it's uh it's a great program to you know continue to follow and uh, to have your name attached to. And um, just a flash to the Yankees. Um, you know, what was the first thing they talked to you about? You know, getting you in the system that you were going to work on, or what they liked about you taking that? Um, you know, just as an offensive player, come out and you know compete you know, every day um, to help the team win by scoring runs and driving in runs, um, and then you know to work on you know my defense and just just developing a routine and becoming a better baseball player every single day. And, and you 
get the move to Staten Island, you know, obviously in the heart of Yankees country, you get to hit into the harbor, that whole stuff. What is that process like being so close uh, and yet so far in terms of levels? Yeah, uh, you know, Staten Island's a great place to play. It's awesome, you know, you, it's a great field. You got a great backdrop, a lot of talented guys on the team. Um, and you, like you said, you know, you're so close, you're across the, the river from, you know, being at Yankee Stadium, but yeah, you're so far away in terms of levels. But, uh, you know, I guess it just reminds you just to, uh, to keep working towards your, your ultimate goal of being a big leaguer. And has any any of the big names, I mean, I know, I know a lot of them are involved kind of in player development, um, talking to the younger guys. Is there any former player or anybody in the organization that's reached out to you or you talked to yet? Uh, not, nobody specifically. Um, you know, Hideki Matsu was uh, in our dugout maybe last week, just kind of hanging out. Um, and just, just to be around. So uh, I know that that's one of the big name guys that was pretty cool to cool to see. Um, but other than that, nobody yet. Yeah, and I don't want to jump forward too much, but you talked about in the offseason. Uh, you'll be staying with Birdie, being roommates again. Where are you guys going to be working out? And what's your kind of plan for that? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll live back in Louisville. I can use all the facilities and stuff. Okay. So, you know, we'll be there and um, working out down there. And other than Birdie, just all the other, you know, guys that are in professional baseball as well uh, from my class and from older classes that are back. Um, you know, it's, it's a good group of guys that go back and uh, work out. Back in the friendly confines of New York City, we find Benjamin Hill safe and sound. How was the the rest of the trip? You drove safely. You made it back. Everything good? We'll start there. Oh, man. that's a, <laughs> yeah, Let's just start there. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I made it home. I, I, I made it through this trip safely. It was one of the most onerous trips I ever did, starting in Sacramento and ending in Spokane and not taking a direct route whatsoever between those two places. Um, but I made it back over the weekend. Um, here's a little insider info for you. I got back on Saturday evening into my apartment, which I just moved into two days before yeah, I left the yeah. trip. Totally unpacked, and I'm like, I'm not dealing with that. I immediately fell asleep for four hours, woke up around 10.30, stayed awake for a few more hours, listened to the Bakersfield Blaze win a game like 14 to 13 in extra innings because I was still on West Coast time. You know, this is how exciting my life is when I get back from a minor league trip. <laughs> and then I slept until 5 p.m. the next day and then, oh, and oh. then, and then 2 p.m. the next day. Holy cow. What? So, yeah. Are you sure you don't have mono? Nah, man, we're, we're I'm slowly moving this way. Nah, 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 we're in stereo, man, surround sound. I'm good to go. But that's what happens to me when I get sick or when I get exhausted. Man. It's like absolutely collapse. Sunday, I was like, cool, man, this is a rest day. But when it just, I could not stop sleeping, I was like, something might be wrong with you. And now Sam's got it. Yeah, yeah. Sam, now you're you're infected. This is, the, uh, this is our whole master plan. Until 3 p.m. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, you did go through. This was a marathon. It was a 10-team trip through California, Nevada, Idaho, and Washington. And the last time we talked to Ben, he was getting set to hit the road from Boise, Idaho, to Tri-City, Washington, uh, with the final trip to Spokane following the next day. So we'll, we'll recap the last couple of stops there. The Tri-City Dust Devils, um, Pasco, Kennewick, and Richland. We, we covered that last week. Um, first of all, how do you say the name of that stadium? Because I've never been able to figure it out. Gisa. Gisa Stadium. 
Gisa, G-E-S-A Stadium. Um, tell us, tell us about Tri City. There, this I I look obviously regularly at the uh, the about last nights and then the blog post later. The food on this trip looks as good as any food that you and the designated eaters have encountered. And in Tri-City, it was the Grand Slam Burger, which is a burger topped with barbecue pulled pork. And then the next day, it was bacon, blue fries, and Spokane, which I haven't been able to stop looking at. But tell us about these two Northwest League stops. Yeah, yeah, let's back it up. I know you're very excited about about the Really excited about the fries. Um, Yeah, I really ended the trip um, with two of my favorite stops on that trip and really of the season. Uh, Tri-City Dust Devils are just one of those teams, you know, having covered the minors now in some capacity for over a decade. Tri-City Dust Devils is just one of those teams that I've given very little coverage to from afar. Um, you know, not all that active on social media, you know, historically, um, not, you know, really aggressive with promotions, at least the ones that get attention, you know, just on a nationwide context. And as long as I've been doing this, I I kind of went to the stadium being like, I don't really know what this team is like, if they're going to know who I am or what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I've had stops like that on trips in the past, and it's really just like flipping a coin. You just don't know what to expect. So I use that setup just to say how impressed I was with the Dust Devils and how being there was just one of the highlights of the trip. Really good crowd on a Thursday night. Uh, Really friendly people. I'm going to just go ahead and stereotype uh, the Tri-Cities of Washington as just a really friendly, welcoming place. How dare you? Yeah, I know. (laughs) How dare you stereotype? We're not going to stand for this. Get the outrage machine into effect on that one. Um, you, you know, the front office staff, um, as I said, the fans, Eric, the peanut guy, uh, longtime Ben's biz blog reader and supporter, um, great on field MC and, um, as well as, um, a peanut vendor in the later innings after his on field duties conclude, um, just a place where there was a lot of energy, a lot of personality, a deep rooted culture and a place I was just, um, pleasantly surprised, not that I was expecting anything negative, but really pleasantly surprised by what an upbeat uh, and engaging environment it was. So I'm going to be writing some stuff about the uh, Dust Devils experience in the very near future. And one of those topics might be how it has, you know, I'm always looking for hyperbole with this job, the biggest this or the craziest this in minor league baseball. And uh, the Tri-City Dust Devils have the largest sunshade in minor league baseball. It is huge. It towers down the uh, first baseline and blocks the sun from the third base side and is really effective. And uh, I actually did an interview about that because I'd never done an interview about a sunshade before. And I'm always looking for new experiences. Yeah. So here's my first ever question about a sunshade. Was this something that they added to the stadium later or was it? Like, did they not realize or they realize, oh, there's a lot of sun here. We need to put something up and we'll just stick this thing up here. Or was this originally part of the plans? Well, I think they probably always knew there was a lot of sun. Um, But no, they did not have that as part of the original stadium design. And, um, you know, I talked to man, I'm blanking on their last names, but I talked to Brent and Daryl, you know. Minor league baseball. It's a friendly yeah. first name basis. Brent and uh, but I talked to Brent and Daryl, um, Tri City bigwigs who've been with the team since uh, the current ownership took over uh, over a decade ago, and uh, they were talking about how when they took over the team, that was a major source of concern in that you had whole half of the ballpark that no one wanted to sit in for, you know, the first hour, hour and a half, two hours of a game, and forget about day games entirely. I mean, this is a stadium that doesn't even have a tarp. They got an exemption from the league or from minor league baseball, not even to have a tarp. So it never wow. rains. It's just, you know, incredibly sunny. I mean, they're called the dust devils. So it's a very dry environment. Um, so they knew this was a problem. But as everything else comes down to in minor league baseball, the issue is funding. And at the time, they were able to uh, there was a state grant 
uh, from the state of Washington, a certain amount of money uh, to be shared by all the state's minor league teams. And uh, the Dust Devils took their portion. I want to say it was about a million dollars, maybe a little bit more, in order to construct this sunshade. And, and the lore behind it was, you know, the architectural the architectural firm that they had hired, you know, had never did a project like this. And it was one of those uh, kind of at a loss and brainstorming and maybe having a few drinks. And one of the guys involved in the project closed his blinds at the end of the night and thought to himself, like, that's it. And that's basically the design. Is it's like One a of those huge aha moment. Yeah, it's an aha moment. They did basically a huge uh, blind, and it, but it doesn't have like you can't adjust it and op open the slats, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> uh, big giant stick that you just sit there. And yeah, turn. I wish, I wish that'd be something you could get like the kid of the game to like turn the sunshade slats, but uh, unfortunately not. But uh, a really cool architectural feature, and it really does provide shade on the third base side when there had been no shade before. Well, let me ask you this, and we'll go back one stop. Last year, the Boise Hawks made some headlines with a plan of their own to defeat the Sun. Was the, the Sun blimp, was that there? Are they still doing that in Boise? No, first of all, I like this whole idea of defeating the sun. Yeah, the sun, the sun. No, none of us are ever going to take it out. We're all aspiring, and this it, it no, won't happen. Anyone's going to defeat the sun. It's going to be the front office staff of a Class A short season minor league baseball team. Uh, the pluckiest ones out there. Yeah, definitely the most qualified. Uh, the Boise Hawks file under a good idea that didn't work um, last year. Uh, new ownership there. Uh, tried to tackle the same problem, did not, unfortunately, have a nice state grant to dip into, uh, tried to get creative with it and uh, use a tethered blimp that they could actually move theoretically throughout the game to to provide that same source of shade. But the early returns were that it just didn't really make much of a difference and the whole plan was uh, jettisoned. So the blimp, the sunshade blimp in Boise, which would have been, I wish it was still there even if it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, to, just, just as a visual, but... Uh, uh, in 2016, uh, that blimp is no longer. It was something they tried in 2015, and it didn't work, and it's been relegated to the dustbin of history. All right, and you said uh, these were two of your favorite stops, so kind of touch on Spokane and what, what made that such a great uh, conclusion to this trip. Well, Spokane, I think last week I was talking about how San Jose jumped out at me at, at, as such a great uh, park on this trip and uh spokane in very much the same way also did and it also reminds me of a, a ballpark like redding uh where you have an old ballpark uh, a, vista, a vista stadium was uh, built in 1958 and uh but like san jose like redding like some of these old ballparks which have been well maintained and which have really uh, capable uh, proactive front office staffs I feel that these old ballparks are assets and not liabilities because they have so much ingrained personality and history. I'm sure if you talk to the front office, there's a million things they'd like to do with a newer ballpark if they had it. But really not you know, using that as an excuse and to have a ballpark, you know, a team that's been in the region for well over 100 years and a ballpark that's been there since 1958. It's got a real classic feel. I mean, it used to host AAA, so it's, you know, it reminds me of Vancouver in that nature, a uh, short season team that used to host AAA. So it's a classic ballpark, uh, you know, bigger than you'd expect for a short season club, really healthy market that, you know, attracts a lot of fans, you know, who have been going to games through the generations, just a lot of color and energy and, and great signage and uh, creative use of an old space. And uh, just the kind of place that, you know, I was there on a Friday night where you just thought, man, this place is, is really popping. And there's uh, just a, a lot of fun to be had here. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And it was a great way to, to close out this whole trip. And one thing I've always been interested in with Spokane in particular, and you, you had a picture on it of it on the blog. Um, you know, they're the Spokane Indians. And there's a lot of discussion nowadays and 
how teams with Native American names, should they change them, um, how they work with the Native American community. They seem to like be the most active in that and working with the local tribes and that kind of thing. What were you able to kind of see from that point of view on that trip? Yeah, this is a story I've covered before and actually written a feature about before, so I'm not sure if I can write another feature specifically, but it was real great to see it in operation. Um, you know, the current ownership group and front office staff, they've been there for quite a while, uh, over a decade, and I was talking to Otto Klein, who I'll call him a vice president. I always, I sometimes forget people's uh, specific titles, but he's one of the uh, one of the leaders of the organization, and he was saying, you know, when we came into this team and we came into this uh, facility, we were aware of the derogatory uh, connotation, you know, with with using a Native American name, and we wanted to, you know, totally avoid that. We wanted to avoid, uh, you know, having you know a TP as our, our ticket booth, which they had in the past. So they were really um, sensitive to those, uh, you know, those stereotypes and propagating those stereotypes. But he said, you know, ultimately, I think we went too far the other way. We completely erased any you know, connotation to the Indians and the Spokane tribe because we were trying to get away from being offensive. So there was nothing, they were called the Indians still because they had such a long history of that, but there was nothing really related to Native American culture in the in the ballpark presentation. And they eventually had the idea, you know, to say, well, hey, the, the we're the Spokane Indians because the Spokane Indian tribe is based here and they're still here. And so they met with tribal leaders and, and they developed a partnership with the tribe and so now they have, um, you know, with the tribe's blessing, they have signage throughout the ballpark in Salish script, which is the language of the Spokane Indian tribe, uh, Salish, S-A-L-I-S-H. And interestingly, it's not a written language. It has never been a written language. Yeah, so that's you, fascinating. So when you have these all lowercase, a lot of apostrophe um, words um, around the ballpark signage, including the home jerseys, as well as, you know, restroom signs and on the clubhouse doors and whatnot. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they came about, you know, the, how to get the written word there, because it's not a word um, that ever really, or a language that ever had written words. And furthermore, there's something like only 10 fluent speakers left of this language. So the team was saying, we just want to draw attention to it. We want to, uh, you know, remind people in the community that this tribe, you know, is still active and still here, and this is their culture and their heritage. Um, obviously, a very complex issue, you know, in sports as well as just the history of America. But in terms of operating a sports franchise in the 21st century with the Native American name, uh, Spokane Indians are the best and thus far only one I've seen that has found a way to partner with the tribe and completely sidestep um, the very dicey, you know, cultural issues of appropriation. Yeah, it's a really, really cool partnership. And uh, the Indians, Ben's final trip on, or final stop on this trip, Ben's got a story up on the site right now that's one of those kind of classic minor league stories that I know guys like Sam and I really love. Um, if you remember the name Matt Caps, Matt Caps is still kicking around professional baseball. Hasn't pitched in the big league since 2012, but he's still out there pitching for AAA Reno. Great story that Ben's got up on the site right now. What was it like catching up with Matt Caps? Yeah, going back to Reno, that's my most um – my most recent article here on MILB.com, you know, I'm always looking around for stories and uh, I don't do too much player stuff, but I'm open to everything. And uh, some people with the Reno Aces, uh, it was suggested to me, you know, Matt Caps is here and he's a real good guy to talk to, a real nice guy. So I met him before the ball game on the night I was in Reno. And here's a guy, 32 years old, you know, broke into the majors. He went from high A to the majors you know, pitched in uh, eight seasons in the majors, obviously had some years in which he was very prominent. You know, he was a closer uh, with the Pirates, with the Nationals, with the Twins, um, you know, made big league money. 
Um, but then as the story goes for a lot of guys, um, you know, in his later 20s, he, he blew out his shoulder, you know, tried to rehab without surgery, eventually gave into surgery, basically missed all the 13, 14, 15 seasons, you know, signed with Cleveland got released, signed with the Braves, got released, was barely pitching at all, didn't pitch in 2015 at all, but was coaching and uh, volunteering in his, uh, around his uh, Georgia hometown and, uh, you know, working with high school kids there and uh, young collegiate athletes there, he, you know, was having catches and uh, realizing, hey, my arm feels pretty good and, you know, I, I never retired and I don't want to retire and uh, talked to his agent, got an offer to play winter ball, parlayed that into an offer with the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks organization to uh, in a minor league deal. And now here he is at 32. You'd think he'd be older than that just given his history, not pitching yeah, since really 2012 and being in eight major league seasons. But, you know, he started young. But he's 32 and uh, on the comeback trail. And, uh, you know, he's holding his own. PCL is a tough league to pitch in. I mean, but he has a, an ERA around five. You know, he's not blowing people away. But he's saying, this is my first time since 2012 that I've been anywhere close to healthy. This coming offseason is the first normal offseason I'll have since 2011. I'm, I'm not... I'm not young, but I'm not, you know, super old. And I just still feel like I have something left. And in talking to him, he was just so soft-spoken and introspective and philosophical and uh, open and unguarded and just a real likable guy from the jump who um, I believed him, you know, when he said, I'm just happy to be here and, and that I'm enjoying being in AAA. There was very little ego about him and very little sense that, you know, I'm done with this. I've been better than this and I shouldn't be here. I think he just felt like a guy who had a new lease on life, doing what he loves the most, happy to share his experience. You know, the cliche, taking it one day at a time. And, uh, you know, I came away from talking to him and writing this story as somebody I'm rooting for. You know, Matt Caps uh, to get back to the majors, or at the very least, just keep doing what he's doing as long as he can, as long as he enjoys it. Yeah, and, and did you get that takeaway from him that he's just happy to be back in the game, you know, just be ha just happy to be going professionally? Or did he get in this, um, you know, strictly thinking he would be in the majors by now? Uh, I don't think he had any expect expectations of that. I mean, having last pitch in the majors in 2012 and then you know barely touching anything in 2013 14 and 15 uh due to injury i think it's improbable enough that he's playing a full season healthy at triple a so i think that's how he's feeling he's like he just feels good every day and uh you know not blowing people away but maintaining and feeling that with a you know knock on wood healthy off season coming up that you know at age 33 he can be even better than he is now and uh you know keep keep uh riding this train for as long as he can. So, uh, yeah, real nice guy and, and just seemed like he just missed the camaraderie, camaraderie and culture of minor league baseball and helping guys out. And, you know, he said to me, he's, he said, uh, you know, one thing I wish I could go back and tell myself, you know, when I was in the majors is just slow down, stop taking everything so seriously, enjoy it because you never know when it's going to end. And he had that very, uh, kind of, uh, older and wiser perspective. And I think, that's what he's taking to Reno. He's not looking around saying, I don't want to be here. He's saying, you know, even this is a gift. I'm playing professional baseball, and uh, I love it here. That is up on the site right now at MILB.com. There is a whole ton more on the blog, which is bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and you can follow Ben on Twitter. He is at bensbiz there, and uh, welcome home, man. Glad you're caught up on sleep, I hope, at this point, after, uh, after what we heard. Very impressive sleep regimen, and, uh, you know, keep it rolling, I guess, if you aren't caught up. Yeah, I'm done with sleep. Now I just got to get back to some semblance of a normal routine. And yeah, life. you got to like build out your new apartment now. You got to do that whole thing, unpack and ugh. Yeah, it's going to be a while before I just wake up and say, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm just living a it's normal life. It's all set. Life. 
yeah, and I'm ready to go. This is my home, and these are my routines, and uh, this is my beautiful wife. <laughs> All right, Ben, we'll talk to you next week. All right, bye, guys. Seventy-second episode of the show before the show podcast coming to a close. Before we get out of here, though, we'll uh, update you on some good stuff to keep an eye out for on milb.tv this week. Sam, what are you watching? Yeah, so uh, we mentioned uh, Danzy Swanson a lot at the top of the podcast, and you may have heard me mention you know they're trying to pair him with Ozzy Albies in the future. Um, so I'm going to focus on you know the Mississippi Braves this weekend uh, going up against the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Uh, I think they've got a four-game set going through Sunday, so you know, take your pick there. Um, but if you're a Braves fan and you're always looking for the next thing, and you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, I mean, that's what this is all about—is looking for the next thing. Uh, you know, tune in to the the M Braves at some point this weekend, or Friday, or or Thursday. You know, the day where you're listening to this podcast. Uh, and see what they do with Ozzy Albies. I mean, I haven't heard anything of if they're going to move him back to shortstop, if they're going to keep him at second base. Um, you know, if they decide to keep him at second, that's going to tell us a lot about how much they really do want to make him a second baseman fully to play next to Danzy Swanson. If they move him back to short, part of that could be to get him comfortable again. I mean, that's his natural position. Um, but it also could be, you know, maybe they're deciding they, they will revisit this again next spring and they come in both as shortstops and both are competing for a major league job at that position. Um, so a lot of questions could be answered in just watching Alzi Albies this weekend. This is a guy, he's still the number 16 prospect in all of baseball, still hitting 333 on the year at double A uh, and only 19 years old at um and a switch hitter. So lots to be excited about with Albies. If you're a Braves fan looking for the next thing, uh, even after Swanson was called up this weekend, uh, what do you got on, on your schedule there, Tyler? I'm going to stay in the same division for the parent clubs. I'm going to go to the Pacific coast league, uh, over the last four games, Michael Conforto and Brandon Nimmo have gone a combined 20 for 37. That's a 541 average combined over their last four games. Four doubles, four homers, nine runs batted in. Brandon Nimmo, since he got back to AAA, has been just hurting baseballs all over the place. His full season AAA slash line now sits at 344, 416, 540. Those two for AAA Las Vegas really getting their bats figured out. That's what Terry Collins... New York Mets manager said he really wanted each of them to do was go down, get regular bats, regular looks against uh, against AAA pitching um, because, you know, you're obviously not going to do a whole lot for your offensive prowess by sitting around only playing once every three days or so as both of those guys really were over the last couple of weeks of their major league stretches. So um, ex- encouraging stuff uh, and good news for Mets fans. For those two, the Mets would really love to get things going and uh, find their way back to the big leagues for another push uh, in 2016 or 2017 and beyond. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. And they, they'll at least be back for September. Um, yeah, rosters expand. yeah, definitely. But, with you know, those are two outfielders, and there's only three spots, and, you know, they, they don't have the spot for them in the majors right now. So we'll have to see how the Mets kind of handle that. Wish they had handled Conforto better, to be honest. They, they keep sending him down saying, oh, he doesn't have confidence. Well, okay, get him some confidence. Like, show him you have trust, trust in him and faith in him and, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, he's performing at the AAA level, so maybe his confidence is growing. And we'll have to see if that carries over to this weekend and potentially all the way to Queens. 
So that'll do it for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast. Again, you can get in touch with us. Sam's on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mon, and you can also email the podcast, podcast at M-I-L-B.com. And uh, we'll do our best to answer all of your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, whatever it is as we get close to the stretch run in the minor leagues. Playoffs coming up here in just a couple of weeks. So like we said last week, get out and support your local club as they push toward the M-I-L-B postseason. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Oh,